It's surprising how surprised we can be when things happen exactly like the Bible tells us that they will. I think of the disciples that Jesus spoke to on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had been crucified, and it was Sunday, it was the third day, and they were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus joined them, but they didn't know it was him, and and they were sad, they were downcast, and he asked them, well, what, you know, what, are you, what are you so sad about? And they said, well, there was this guy, and we thought he was the Messiah, but then he died. And some of the women even said this morning that his tomb was empty, and you know, they're just moping their way to Emmaus, thinking that they had invested their life in Jesus, thinking he was the Messiah, and then none of it turned out like they thought it would. But Jesus rebuked them for being slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. The prophets had predicted the death of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah. Jesus himself had told his disciples exactly what would happen, that he would die and that he would rise. It happened exactly like he said it would, and they were still surprised. Some were surprised when they heard from the women that the tomb was empty. Some, even after they saw Jesus alive, risen from the dead, doubted. Even though he had told them that is exactly what would happen. Now for us, the thing that comes to mind is that Jesus told us that in this world, we would have trouble. But we can still act surprised when the trouble comes. There's a pattern in the Bible that should be hard to miss. That the one who faithfully speaks God's word is often persecuted, sometimes by God's own people. It starts all the way back with Cain and Abel. Abel was righteous, Cain was wicked, and Cain murdered his brother Abel. Joseph in the Old Testament was hated by his own brothers, thrown into a pit, almost killed, but decided to sell him and instead make some money off of him. Sold as a slave into Egypt. Moses, faithfully speaking God's word to God's people, and yet how many rebellions did Moses encounter? How much grumbling did Moses have to put up with? David, a man after God's own heart, was hounded by Saul. Saul tried to put him to death. Elijah fled from Jezebel, who intended to kill him. John the Baptist imprisoned and beheaded for speaking the truth. And of course, Jesus himself crucified those sinless. Jesus was the climax of that pattern, of course, but the pattern doesn't stop with him. He never said, guys, once I am persecuted, once I suffer, then everyone will get on board with loving everybody who speaks God's word and no more persecution for anybody who follows the Lord. That's not what he told his disciples would happen. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. The servant is not greater than the master, right? So if they persecuted Jesus and put him to death, should we expect better treatment than that? No, we should not. So Jesus warned his disciples and warned us that we would face hardship. And not just hardship, but also persecution. And 
we see that exact thing unfold in the lives of the apostles and the early church in the book of Acts. This morning we're going to focus on Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. We were in Acts, uh, you might recall, back before uh, Christmas, but it's been quite a while since we've been in Acts, so let me kind of remind you where we are. In Acts chapter 3... Uh, the, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. The disciples, uh, the apostles have preached the gospel. 3,000 people have been saved. So the church has been born. Um, the church is worshiping together, gathering together, fellowshipping together. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go up to the temple in Jerusalem at the hour of prayer. And there's a man there at the temple who's been lame from birth, so he's, he's never been able to walk in his whole life, and he, he's there hoping to get money, right, hoping to receive alms, obviously he can't work, and so he's asking for money, but instead of giving him money, Peter heals him in the name of Jesus, or better, Jesus heals him through Peter, and of course that created quite a disturbance, because if you've never walked in your life and all of a sudden you're fully healed, you don't just quietly walk away. He jumps around, he, he leaps, he praises God, he's hanging out with the apostles in the temple court, a, a, uh, a crowd of people gathers, because this guy was probably sort of a feature of the temple area, right? People who come there regularly have seen him for years, most likely. They know exactly who he is, they know he can't walk, and yet here he is dancing around because his life has been changed. People want to know what's going on. So Peter tells them that Jesus healed this man. And uh, that crowd hears the gospel, but the religious leaders who are in charge of the temple also get word of what's going on and try to shut it down. So let me read for us Acts chapter 4. We're going to uh, look at verses 1 to 22 this morning. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, so this is Peter and John, They're speaking to the people. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So Peter and John are arrested in chapter 4 for nothing more than preaching. And this is, in a sense, the beginning of the persecution that unfolds throughout the book of Acts. But, as we've just seen, it's really a continuation of the persecution that stretches all the way back to the very beginning with Cain and Abel. They were persecuted and imprisoned simply because they were preaching about Jesus. Now, the, the people who come to arrest them are exactly the people we would expect to be here. They're the disciples are at the temple court, right? And the people who are in charge of the temple are the priests and the high priestly family. And they take notice of this disturbance that has uh, erupted around this man who's been healed. And so they come to see what's going on. And they find Peter and John at the center of what's going on. And they arrest them. And it says that they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now for the Sadducees, who are mentioned here as well, there are two problems there. The Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection at all. The Pharisees did. The Pharisees believed that the Scriptures taught that there would be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous at the end. The Bible does make that clear in Old and New Testament. But the Sadducees didn't believe that. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. So they probably weren't happy that these men were preaching about resurrection at all. But the real problem was that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Jesus they thought they finally got rid of. Now here they are preaching to the people in the name of Jesus, connecting the resurrection to Jesus. And the Sadducees and the chief priests and all the rest, they want to put a stop to it. So what do they do? They arrest the apostles. They uh, put them in custody, it says, until the next day, because it's already late in the day by this point. So they don't have time to deal with them or have a trial or whatever they're going to do. So they just arrest them and imprison them for the night and they'll deal with them tomorrow. But that's not the only thing that's going on. So, you know, in a way they were too late and another way there was nothing they could do about what was going on anyway because chapter 4, or excuse me, verse 4 says, but many of those who heard the word 
believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we were at 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. But the end of Acts 2 says that day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Now we're up to 5,000 men. And that number seems not to include women and and, uh, perhaps older children who have believed or or whoever. So 5,000 or more people by this time have come to believe in Jesus. And what Luke is telling us here by affirming that is similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul's writing his last letter, and he knows that he's about to die. He's in prison himself, like Peter and John are here in Acts chapter 4. And he says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul says, I'm in jail, but that can't stop God's word from spreading. They've imprisoned me, one of the apostles, one of God's missionaries, but that doesn't keep the word from spreading. The chief priests and the Sadducees, they come and arrest Peter and John, but that doesn't stop people from being converted. That doesn't stop people from believing. That doesn't stop people from hearing and responding and coming to trust in Christ. Jesus promised his disciples that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. God told us in Isaiah 55 that he would send out his word and that it would accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. It would not return void. And we are told that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. And this is how those things tend to go together. Those who stand up and speak God's word are opposed and even persecuted, but the word of God convicts and converts, and so the church grows even as people try to stop it. Now the next day, when they gather together and bring the uh, offending apostles to their view before them, We're told who's there. Verse 6, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas. You might remember the name of Caiaphas because he was deeply involved in the so-called trial of Jesus when he was arrested and betrayed and ultimately sent to be crucified. Caiaphas had a hand in that. And here he is now also having a hand in this hearing about the disciples Peter and John and what they've been doing. So they come together and here's the question they ask of the disciples. It's in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? How did you heal this man? What, what power healed this man? What name did you use or call upon to heal this man? Peter's not hesitant. He's not embarrassed to answer. He's not afraid. In fact, it says in verse 8 that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now this also is the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he left. In Mark 13, Jesus said, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, 
Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now that's not a promise to preachers who know they're supposed to preach every Sunday morning so that you don't have to prepare. Oh, the Holy Spirit's going to give me something to say. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you're arrested and persecuted and you're put on trial and you have to stand in front of somebody and give an answer, know that my spirit will be with you and my spirit will give you the words to say. You don't have time to prepare, but you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. That's what that promise is about. And that's what's happening for Peter here when he stands before this group of men. The Holy Spirit of God fills him and enables him to speak with boldness, truth, and conviction even though, in a way, his life may be on the line. So what does Peter have to say about all this? Well, Peter tells them essentially what he told the crowd earlier, the day before, when they asked, you know, how did this happen? How was this man healed? Peter's very clear about what happened. He says, ruler of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, means this, uh, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he doesn't leave that detail out, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter takes no credit for the miracle, He doesn't claim that he somehow did it. He makes clear that it was Jesus himself. It was the name of Jesus, which when he says that, we we talked about this before. The name of God or the name of Jesus is not like a magic formula. Like if you just say it, that there's some kind of power in the the sounds coming out of your mouth. That's not what he means. In the Bible, uh, your name is is connected, especially God's name, is connected to your character, to who you are. To call upon the name of Jesus is just to call upon Jesus himself. To to be healed in the name of Jesus is to be healed by the power and mercy and grace of Jesus himself. So Peter says, essentially, you guys thought you got rid of Jesus. The Jesus you crucified. Remember Jesus of Nazareth? Caiaphas, I know you do. The Jesus of Nazareth that you guys tried to put to death. He is alive. And he is at work. And he is the one who healed this man who's standing before you well. You rejected Jesus. God resurrected Jesus. You're in trouble. And you need to repent. That's been Peter's message so far. That was his message in chapter 2. That was his message in chapter 3. That's his message in chapter 4. You guys got Jesus wrong. And because you got Jesus wrong, you need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord. You need to confess that He is the Messiah. You need to put your trust in Him. Notice he says... In verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's referencing Psalm 118, which is a passage that Jesus referenced as well in one of his parables. The builders who are supposed to be constructing perhaps this temple 
look at this stone, Jesus, and they say, this one's worthless. It's so worthless, we don't even want it in here. We're going to throw it out. We can't even use it to make this building. But God comes in and says, no, not only is that stone not worthless, that's the cornerstone. That's the most important stone. That's the foundation stone. You didn't just make a mistake. You got the most important stone, the most important figure wrong. Your verdict and God's verdict are directly opposed, which means your verdict is wrong and you need to repent. Well, there's also good news. Peter says in verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's not another way, there's not another option, but there is a way. Right? Sometimes when people hear a verse like this, they think, that sounds so exclusive, that sounds so limiting. And it is exclusive. There is no other way, there is no other Savior. But it is also very generous because there is a way, there is a Savior, and God has provided that way, and God has provided that Savior Himself. It was at the cost of His own Son that a way was made for us to be saved. Jesus says about Himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way, but there is a way. How arrogant and ungrateful is it to say, God, I know you made a way. God, I know it was costly, but can't you make another one? Can't there be another one? And the problem is not with God being exclusive. It's with us being ungrateful, rebellious, selfish, whatever label you want to put on it. God has made a way. God has provided a way. Yes, there's only one, but there is one. And anyone who comes to Jesus, who turns to Jesus, who trusts in Jesus, is forgiven, is saved. It's exclusive in the sense that this is the only way, but it's also wide open in the sense that everyone is called upon to repent and believe. And anyone who does repent and believe is received. No one is turned away when they come confessing their sin and trusting in Jesus. Absolutely no one. So Peter proclaims the gospel to them and they are surprised by what they encounter. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These guys aren't trained rabbis. They didn't go to the same schools that we did. How can they stand in front of us and speak so boldly? They're astonished by that. And perhaps it was their boldness that reminded them of Jesus. Because Jesus was the same way. Jesus didn't go to their rabbi school. But Jesus was unintimidated by them. Jesus spoke the truth to them. Maybe that's why this encounter jogged their memory and they recognized that these were not just any old men. These were men who had been disciples of Jesus, who had been with Jesus. They were imitating here the boldness of Jesus. What is 
not necessarily surprising, but in a sense baffling about the way these men respond, is that they, they cannot deny the miracle that has happened. And they know it. Right? They, they send the men, uh, they send Peter and John out, right? They command them to leave, verse 15. And then they, they're talking among themselves, verse 16, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There's the, there's the man right there. Everybody knows he was lame. Everybody can see now that he can walk. We can't say anything different. So what are we going to do? Well, we could believe that what Peter says is true and that Jesus is alive and he is the Messiah and he healed this man. But they're not going to do that. So what is their other option? Their other option is just to try to intimidate and shut down Peter and John. So this thing that's starting to get out of hand doesn't spread. So that's what they do. Verse 18 says, So they called the men and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How's that going to go? Peter and John can be like, Okay, you're right. The Messiah is here. We just won't talk about it. He died and rose from the dead, and we saw it. We just won't talk about it. No way. Peter tells them, he said, and I love the way he words this. He says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What do you think I ought to do? You think I ought to listen to you or listen to God? What's your verdict? He knows what they think. They're not going to say it out loud. But that's exactly what they're trying to get Peter to do. They're trying to get Peter to listen to them rather than God, to obey them rather than God. But Peter says plainly, he's not going to do that. He says in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop talking about what I saw happen with Jesus. I can't stop talking about what Jesus told us to say, what Jesus told us to preach. I'm not going to stop. You can tell me to stop, but I'm not going to stop. So verse 21 says, When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what happened. Although the people are with them, right? The people have witnessed the miracle. Many of the people have believed the people are praising God because God has done something amazing. And so these men can't stop them because the people are on their side. And the people are responding exactly how everyone in this story should be responding. Praising God for the good things that he has done. Praising God for the fact that he is still at work. Praising God that he is healing those who are in need of healing. Praising God that he is reminding us that he has the power to save. Even someone who's in their 40s who's never walked before. That's an astounding miracle that he has just performed. And Peter stands as an example for all of us, for how we are called to respond whenever the world says, I know God says, 
whatever, but we say, don't do that. When it's that clear, when it's something God has clearly commanded, when it's something God has clearly said in His Word, it's not, it's not just like an opinion, it's not just like our, our idea, or whatever. When it's something God has clearly said, do this, and someone else says, don't. It's not a hard decision to make. Right? It, it's very plain. If the choice is between obeying God and obeying you, I have to obey God. Whoever you are. Caesar on down. So in this story, there are two things happening at once. God's people are being oppressed and persecuted. That's one thing that's happening. And at the same time, God is at work doing amazing things. Sometimes we think that only one of those can happen at a time. If we are being persecuted and oppressed, God must not be at work. Or if God were at work, we wouldn't be persecuted and oppressed. That's simply not what we find in the Bible. It shouldn't surprise us that that's often not what we find in the experience of the church. The right response to those two things happening at the same time, experiencing opposition, but also witnessing God at work in the world, the right response in the middle of all that is exactly what we see in this story. Praising God and courageously obeying Him. No amount of opposition should make us back down from obeying God where He has spoken clearly. And no amount of opposition should blind us to the fact that Jesus is alive and at work in the world. And that's going to continue until he comes back. And when he comes back, then everyone will recognize him as king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.